We totally didn't discuss who was doing the intro today. Should I do the <laughs> intro, John, or do you want to take it? I took it last week, so I'm going to throw it back to you this week, sir. All right. Well, everybody, uh, sorry for that uh, little bit of confusion. Uh, welcome to an all-new episode of WT Fada. I am, of course, merely Ron, but joining me is the almighty, the immortal, powerful, and... Dare I say, very, very cute, mister. <laughs> After all that, <clears throat> um, it's John. <laughs> <laughs> These are oh, very, both... very exciting intros. I, I like this a lot. This is good. Mm-hmm. We gotta find new ways to spice it up each week. We have to. You know, it's, uh, oh, you know what? Seeing that we're in the off-topic... Right at the beginning of it, I just want to say a very heartfelt uh, thank you for listening to our listeners in Ireland. It's the beard, man. I'm drawing them in. <laughs> it is. It's the beard. <laughs> I'm yeah. an Irishman myself. I got the red beard. Mm-hmm. I'm not very tall. I'm an alcoholic. It's just I love potatoes. <laughs> oh, <no>. Everything, man. <laughs> Everything is all like the stereotypical Irish stuff. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, I I feel like we could have offended our Irish fans just right then. Like, that's it. No more, no more Irish. They wear it like a, a, I can say it. Yeah. They, they, (laughs) they, uh, they wear it like a badge of honor, right? I mean. Damn right we do. Yeah. It's like. No. That's what you do. I I, I haven't touched alcohol in a couple weeks now. How you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Running well. feeling Yes, actually, I actually ran my, I, you know, I've been getting more and more into running lately because I have all this time in my hands. It's like, well, why not? Um, I ran my fastest mile this past weekend, so. Nice. That's that's something to be proud of. Yeah. Not my fastest mile ever. You know, I was, I used to be in much better shape when I was younger, but mm. since I started picking it up again, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like so far this, this diet is, it's working well. You know, I have like a few few days where I'm like not really feeling so well and I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, I'll try and give it at least a week and if it's still not adjusting, maybe a few more days and then, you know, we'll, we'll reevaluate from there. But then yeah. when I am out there being active, I do feel energized. So For sure, yeah. One of the things that you're going to be experiencing is like, like I had experimented with like... Uh, ketosis and all of that stuff like for the better part of last year um so when i switched over to carnivore i kind of immediately got into ketosis i got immediately into it and i wasn't feeling um i didn't feel there's something called the keto flu that you're gonna have 100 Uh percent because your body is gonna be like well wait a minute wait a minute i'm supposed to have carbs why am i not having carbs what am i gonna use for energy and all of a sudden, you're going to dip. You're going to feel kind of trashy, like you actually have the flu. And then your body will figure out that it can use fat for fuel. And then you'll switch over and you'll be fine. Um, but there, that is going to happen. And it's going to be... Um, it might feel a little weird for a couple of days. But you'll be all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of that keto flu. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's just because your body doesn't have what it would normally go to for energy. 
Um, so it's trying to figure out how it's going to function. And it just, fat is like an alternate fuel source. It's like fat is stored energy on your body, right? So, but, but if you're constantly having an influx of calories, your body never gets to a point where it actually has to use it because it's using all of the carbohydrates that are coming in because it's easier right. for it to process. So you're in a situation where now you've taken carbs away from your body. Your body's going to start like panicking and not knowing what to do. And it's during that time that you're going to feel kind of, kind of shitty. And then you'll switch over. And once you do, you basically, after, after like a month of doing this, you're probably going to reach a state of like fat adaptation, which is your body won't, your body will do the opposite thing. Like if you, at the end of this month, if you cut out fats, uh -huh. you would wind up getting like, I would assume something similar to the keto flu only where your body is like, well, where's the fat? What am I going to do? And then all of a sudden it'll see the carbs that you're eating and be like, oh, okay, got it. You know? Um, yeah, I figured it'd be like a rough transition back into it. Yeah. So like I, once you're fat adapted, like, like I, I did the fat adaptation thing last summer, right? And from probably my birthday until I'm not fucking around late February, I ate like shit and I didn't put on that much weight. I put on about 15 pounds when I probably should have put on like 50. Um, Jesus. Yeah, because my body was just all the fat and disgusting shit I was eating. It was like, all right, let's let's use this you know, to kind of run things, and all the carbs, I think, were, I was just dodging, like, I wasn't having a lot, I, I just didn't put on as much weight as I should have after I became fat adapted, so I don't know, seemed like a really good strategy for me in terms of dealing with my weight, but I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, I read things, um, but bodies are so complicated that I can never, like, I never feel like I quite understand everything that's going on uh, with it or why things happen the way they do and you look at all of this research and it's like everybody has like a different opinion on everything that's going on and, and all the different ways that things work and there's conflicting research and, and it's it's kind of a mess uh, so it's all guesswork on, on my end anyways but I think that's what happened yeah a lot of stuff that I've read it's all different mm -hmm. so I'm like all right, I'm like, oh, you know, some stuff is like, oh, yeah, you know, you can use more than just salt and pepper for seasonings, and you can drink coffee and this and that, and, you know, you could use, like, a no-calorie hot sauce like Frank's or whatever, and mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, you know, maybe I could do that. I haven't used much of the hot sauce, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I might just, uh, if things have to get boring, I'll probably add that just to, you know, yeah. literally spice it up a little bit, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to cut down on the cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, I've had more than I probably should have, so I've... Don't go too kinda, far. Don't go too far, yeah. because you have to keep your ratios, like, 70 to 30. Because if you uh -huh. if you take in too much protein, you're going you're gonna to kick yourself out of that ketosis. You're going to wind up with... Uh, it's called gluconeogenesis, which is basically your body takes the protein and through some type of witchcraft turns it into carbohydrates. <clears throat> which is really weird. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah, that is, uh, man, that is pretty weird. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, like, dude, in the first, two like, two days, 
I ate half a log of mozzarella cheese. I'm like, all right, maybe that's a little much. No, you're totally good. That's totally fine. <laughs> Honestly, I lost 50 pounds eating entire logs of mozzarella cheese, eggs, and red meat. So mm-hmm. I think you're good. If you want to have, you can have as much cheese as you want, and I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll slow you down. I mean, all bodies are different, so I could be telling you something that's complete nonsense. And I also had the benefit of already being fat adapted when I started doing that diet. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that is something that would be a stumbling block, but I, I, I don't, I think you're okay. Monitor yourself. See if you start to feel like, you know, I think you'll, you'll feel a difference, um, You'll feel a difference, like if, uh, like if you cut it out, and then you might start feeling like kind of bloated, crappy, and stuff, and that could be a result of the gluconeogenesis. But it's all guesswork for me. But I don't know. I'm a big yeah. proponent of cheese. Cheese got me through carnivore. If I didn't have cheese, I think I would have been like, oh fuck! I don't think I yeah. could have done it. But. Dude, I'm, I'm like the same way. Like, <sighs> cheese is like the way to go. So good. Just, you know, even if you're, um, like, even if you're worried about it, too, a lot of, like, like, I ate mozzarella cheese, but there's a lot of carnivores that are, like, hard off-the-block cheese, so, like, sometimes I go and I get, like, old crock-aged cheddar from our friends down in Australia. Um, and uh-huh. also, hey, on point, on topic... From our beautiful friends in Ireland, uh, I go and I get um, what is the name of it? Kerry Gold, Kerry Gold Kerrygold cheese. Butter. Yeah, I get the Kerry Gold butter and I get Kerry Gold um, Dubliner cheese or Reserve Aged Cheddar. Um, today's sponsor, Kerry Golds. Thank you. For, uh, I didn't know they did cheese, but I've been getting the Kerry Gold butter for a while now. Oh, the Kerry Gold cheese is really good, um, and the butter I like, I fucking love, dude. It is so good. I've never been like, you know how you see people that will sometimes be like, it used to be a thing that you'd see in movies, like some fucking psychopath would take like a stick of butter and be like, mm, mm, you know, and enjoying it. Like, that's, I would never do that. But Kerry Gold tempts me. <laughs> I, I, I do take like, a, you know, a little, blo- not like a block, you know, I'll no. cut off like a, probably maybe like a gumball sized piece or something. Yes. And I'll just. Yep. It's good. I shave like a piece of just um, and just let it melt on my tongue. That's a beautiful thing. Truly. <laughs> um Alright, so other than that, uh what have you been uh what have you been up to? What is today? Monday? So we did a show just recently. Hasn't been long. Yeah. Um anything? Not much. Not much to be honest, man. Not much at all. Yeah. I um Yeah, it's been a couple days, you know. Mm-hmm. Same old shit. Haven't really watched anything new or anything. Yeah. I've been catching Nothing. up on um Westworld and I'm like that show's fucking great, dude. Like it is so but it's it, it's great, but also it's like I don't know, sometimes I like wonder how complicated it needs to be. Um but I kind of it's worth the uh it's definitely challenging. It's kind of like Lost. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that, that the last season of Westworld was really good, and I've never seen that show, but I've been wanting to get into it at some point. It's um, it's really, uh, like, I don't know, like, the further along it goes, 
the more you start to understand what the overall plan is for the show. Uh And I'm like, this thing could be fucking biblical by the time we're getting towards like the final seasons of it. You know, like it's, it's, it's a pretty massive, uh, a pretty massive and ambitious concept that they're, they're taking down, you know? Um, Uh And it's, you know, it's all the people involved are great. Like, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. So Jonathan Nolan is the brother of Christopher. Um, And then J.J. Abrams is a producer on it. They have a lot of, um, just a lot of really talented writers. And uh, their cast is amazing, too. And, Uh um, yeah, I mean, they just keep delivering twist after twist. And it, it doesn't feel, like, needless. It all feels like it's for a purpose, which is, I think, the key to keeping kind of the momentum up. <clears throat> but yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying that. I haven't watched the last episode of Better Call Saul yet, but I'm planning to as soon as I I think I'm going to try to catch up on the rest of Westworld and then I'll jump back to Better Call Saul, but I don't know. That's pretty much all I've been doing. Yeah, there you go. Still solid. To, yeah, still trying to work out and stuff. Um wanting to run more because I feel like I'm starting to reach a point where it's like I've gotten as, you know, I've lost as much as I'm going to lose without concerted effort. So now it's time for that effort. Um, yeah, dude, definitely. And um, I've, I don't, I hate running, man. I hate it. But like, I, I like what it does for me after mm-hmm. I do it. Yeah. You know, I like that it gives you a clear goal. Mm-hmm. You know, just by time mm-hmm. and how you feel, you know, and yeah. it's, it's weird. Cause like some days I'll run and I'm like, Oh, I felt pretty good on that one. And then I get my, you know, my, my t- one mile time. I mean, it's a little, you know, it's a little worse than I thought it was going to be. So it's uh sobering and I'm like, all right, well, I still have a lot of work to do. You know, yeah. I, I may you know next time, maybe instead of trying to keep like a consistent pace, maybe I push myself harder at different times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it kind of gives me just like a clear goals to get to, you know, it's an easy goal to, uh, to set for yourself. Yeah. Yesterday was weird. I, I hadn't run in, um, in quite a while. It was probably like a month or so since I had last run. But, uh, uh-huh. uh, yesterday I was sitting here and I was like, holy shit. Like I really want to go. Like I really want to do this today. And, um, you know, it was like, <clears throat> it was very, it was interesting. Like I started my run out. I started right from my driveway. And then I realized I was like, I, I was rounding the corner of like Cunningham street, which is quite a distance from my house. And I hadn't stopped running once. And I was like, holy shit. And then I kept running down Cunningham street. And I didn't stop until way later than I normally do. Like it was way better than I had ever done before. And I was like, I wonder if this is a result of, the weight loss where I'm not expending as much energy. Maybe I'm not needing as much oxygen or what, but it was very, it was very interesting. It was like, my body was like telling me like, you should run, you should run. I'm ready to run. I want to run. And I never really had that happen before. Like a craving for something that's good for me. Unusual for me. That's not how that works. (laughs) I crave things that are bad for me. Like, you know, like, like soda like uh terrible foods for you and women you know um (laughs) (laughs) but 
I'm sorry to all the women that actually listen to the show. I really apologize, and I understand that I'm canceled, but John's still here, so please continue listening. Yeah, Ron's canceled, but I'll do my best to balance it out. <laughs> I hate being canceled. They're never going to know what you're responding to, or like you'll have a really profound insight to something, and then it'll just be like a couple minutes of silence. Like they're just never going to know what the hell is being talked about. Like right now, they're just listening to blatant silence because I'm canceled. <laughs> and they don't know why you laughed. You see that? It's weird. It's very strange. This cancel culture thing is, is fucking terrible. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that before on here. I believe, right? We talk, Did we talk about that on, on air? Or oh, I'm like sure it's come up before. Cancel culture. Yeah, yeah it's definitely come up. <laughs> it's a very... You know, it's we have to talk to each other. It just does. It's it seems counter uh, productive, in my opinion. I don't think people learn that way. No, they just piss people off more, and they just continue being shitty. Yep, they get fur- dug further and further in their boots and their heels. You know. Um. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so all right, I don't um have too much more to discuss in our off topic do you want to jump into the actual episode yeah i'm ready you know i think it's it's you know beneficial to kind of talk about our experiences with our health choices you know it's i feel like it's like a general topic amongst everybody you know yeah so if we can share experiences and people can find motivation or some some type of insight on mm-hmm. what we're going through and, you know, it helps them make choices and experiment with things that might be better for them, then fuck yes. Yeah. I wanted to say, too, we, we kind of talked about you doing the diet and stuff. Um, so John's doing the carnivore diet right now. I'm kind of transitioning out of it. Uh, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, we talked a lot more about all that stuff. But uh, I just want to say that as far as carnivore goes, I lost 50 pounds doing it. So, I don't know. I don't think it's totally healthy for you, but I also think that if you want to lose a bunch of weight really fast, and you don't mind... Like, I don't think a month of eating this way is gonna, like, give me cancer in 20 years. Like, I highly... That's what I'm saying, yeah. So, so if you want to lose a bunch of weight real fast, jump on the carnivore train. It was good for me. I have a problem with food. So, doing it this way, just cut out everything that was bad for me and left me with something that was still satisfying and now i'm starting to introduce things that number one i'm not going to overeat and number two are good for me so now i'm like excited that i'm having green beans that's weird (laughs) it's a very strange thing um so it was a kind of a good hard reset for me so if you're interested in it give it a shot i don't think anything bad will happen but listen to your body listen to what it's telling you It'll, it'll guide you absolutely don't be afraid to experiment i think is the point here you know don't be afraid to try shit you know obviously don't do anything extreme but do some research on what you want to try yeah i mean this is like the most extreme thing that i've ever done it's definitely like very bizarre it's very like it's like a faddish kind of diet where it's like this might not stick around for very long um but I don't know. It worked. I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. Sorry to all the vegans. It worked. I don't know what to tell you. Um, all right. 
We're going to take uh, or throw to commercial. It's like, I love that phrase. Throw to commercial. And we're going to jump back in with Django. Oh, no, I can't say it. I can't say it because I got to ask John. I got to ask John the question. I feel like it could be a little bit redundant, but I'm going to ask the question, uh, what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> well, we just so have to be talking about our sixth episode of the Quarantino, which is Django Unchained. Django Unchained. If you couldn't, if you couldn't guess by that, that lovely intro that yes. Ron played for us. Yes. Played for us. Yeah, I... Don't know how that's going to come out on the recording, but I kind of, I, I like the idea that it sort of sets the tone for us to, seeps us back into the movie in a solid 30 seconds. I like that. Um, I do my best work in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience, I know this is true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we're telling them a little too much about us, Ron. <laughs> um... So, John, uh, as, so. <laughs> as I've been as I've been doing with every episode of the Quarantino, I of course am a longtime fan of Quentin Tarantino, and you had never really seen too many of his movies. So I'm going to ask you a question: What did you think of the Django Unchained? So this one is your favorite, right? It is my favorite. I can see why. Oh, yes. This one was a lot of fun. It was fun and and not like uh like this is cool type way but it was is fun and like uh you know it starts off with a character who's like at the bottom of the barrel in his life right now you know mm -hmm. like things are really bad and it just it's a great redemption story mm -hmm. i mean watching you know i don't want to fast forward to the end here or through it but just watching how he turns the tables and just turns into a complete fucking badass is it's satisfying to watch oh it's so good some of his best characters are in this movie too like I think Django's great, but, you know, we talked so much about Christoph Waltz and his, like, oozing menace that he had in Inglorious Bastards last week. And then I feel like having him in this movie and, you know, playing not an evil German, but playing a really good German, um, like, he's so... He, that character is so awesome. Like, I love King Schultz. I love, like, the mythology around King Schultz, and I love what he stands for. I love that he's an inherently decent person, you know? Um, Dude, he's you're... awesome. Because, I, you know, last week when we talked about it, he talked about him in this movie, and I didn't recognize him at first. Mm -hmm. So, I, kinda, I, you know, I, I, I had to look up who it was, and I was like, oh, that's fucking Christoph Waltz. Yeah. And that dude fucking nailed it. Yeah. He's so great. Like, from the first scene... The first scene with, like, the, the movie opens with that 
beautiful song there. Um, uh-huh. And images of Django and other slaves being led through like a rocky desert. And then at a certain point, the, you know, it switches from day to night and they're in some type of wooded area and uh, they, are, they are come upon by uh, King Schultz who's driving his cart. It's King Schultz and his horse Fritz. <laughs> and uh, he's got like the, he's got like a dentist cart uh, with the tooth on the top of it, like on a spring. It's very like, it's just a, it's just a cool image. I don't know. There's something about like just that, that old fashioned uh, advertising, you know? Um, <clears throat> but that, that whole sequence where he like stops them, um, he's asking them about like, uh, he's asking the slaves where they're from and everything. And then he like goes in to start to like some kind of a negotiation about potentially buying one of them. And uh, that whole sequence is great because I feel like, you know, and I don't know how you feel, but like when I watched it, I didn't really know what to expect from him at first. Um, I think I was cued into the idea that like Christoph Waltz is evil. So I just, as soon as I saw him, I was like, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. What was I? How did you feel? Um. I figured if the guys that were leading slaves for the woods on a cold night were nervous about someone, then I had a feeling that they were either, either a, even more terrifying than they are Mm -hmm. or B, they were a good person. Yeah. But, um, you know, we quickly look quickly learned that he's not all that bad a dude. I mean, he did just fucking blow the head off a horse. Yeah. That's probably the worst thing that. (sighs) does. Yeah. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, though, um, no, the guy seemed like he had a pretty good head on his shoulders. Yeah. Overall, like a decent dude. It was like, in my line of work, I got to get my hands dirty, and mm-hmm. I understand that it's for the greater good. So, you know, yeah. it's kind of like sacrifice a few for, you know, saving many type ideology. Yeah. I think, too, that, like, one of the things like when you look at that deed like he shoots he he asks whether or not one of the guys that's talking to him and telling him to stop talking to the slaves the way that he is um one of the guys kind of is like tells him to get out of there and he pulls he like motions with his gun when he does it and king Uh schultz takes the opportunity to question the action and be like okay, did you just get, I think he says something to the effect of like, did you just get overzealous in your uh, motioning or did you actually aim a gun at me? And like, once he confirms that, then it's like game on. He like blows that dude's head off and then he turns and he shoots the horse and causes it to collapse on its rider. And I think that at first it's like, at first I'm like, wow, that's like really fucking shitty. Like he shot a horse. The horse had nothing to do with all this. But also, like, you find out more about Schultz's methods, and once you do, you understand that it's like, okay, well, he needed one of those men to be alive to sign the document, you know, that would say, like, that it was a lawful sale, you know, between the two parties. So, uh-huh. if he hadn't needed that guy alive, he probably would have just shot them both. And not hurt the horses, but he actually needed it for the paperwork. So 
it like almost excuses it. You find out like the way that Schultz operates is he does everything straight in line with his business. You know, like he never will step outside of it or he never has before. Ultimately, we will see him step outside of the bounds of what is necessary for his business eventually. Um, but I think that the... Um, if you can like, hear me. Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, yeah, you you froze and went quiet for a second there. Oh yeah, sometimes this uh, the internet connection is a little weird. Every once in a while, like I'll drop one of your words, but for the most part, we've been okay. But um, yeah, it usually is. But that one time, it was like it was really prolonged. Yeah. All right. We'll keep an eye on it, but um, but yeah, I think like once you learn that he's operating in like a um, everything by the book manner it makes a lot more sense why he did what he did, you know? Yes. Exactly. Um, I think that... So it's like a one-two punch, like, getting you to love King Schultz. It, it, it's like, not only do we see him rescue Django, but I think the scene with them riding into that town um, and going to the bar and the whole series of events that follows Django and him going into that bar is honestly probably one of my favorite Tarantino scenes, like one of the best ones he's ever written, in my opinion. Um, uh-huh. I just love the, the build-up to, like, the climax of it and the resolution of it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I Every time I watch it, I can't help but laugh. Like, Christoph Waltz has such, like, a magnetic energy to him. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's just so confident. I love how he doesn't he doesn't clue Django in, in any of anything what's going on. You know, you think he'd be like, listen, this is what's going to happen. You should probably like prepare yourself, mm-hmm. but he just goes ahead. He shoots the, uh, was the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sheriff kills him. And Django's like, shouldn't we run? And he's like, nah, come on back in. Yeah. <laughs> just sit down. <laughs> yeah. Sit down and wait. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, dude, like fucking go. It like makes me anxious. It made me anxious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the... Because, it like, it seemingly is like you're in a situation that it's like, you will definitely get in a lot of trouble for shooting a sheriff. Like, you're in a bad spot right now. And I just love how, like, calmly and coolly he sort of... Like, once the U.S. Marshal shows up and he has, like, something like... I forget what the number was, but it seems like they have, like, 120 guns, like, pointed at them, you know? And... He just, like, comes out with his arms raised and just, like, calmly explains the situation. And it's, like, through his dialogue that he reveals that the man that he shot, yes, he was an elected sheriff, but he was also a cattle rustler. um, And that he is wanted. Uh, There's a bounty on his head for $200. Um, This is, like, we've already heard Schultz talk to Django about his job, which is, you know, he is a bounty hunter. Um, I like when he described it as a flesh for cash business, like slavery, only, you know, dead flesh, you know, like, um, but yeah, the, the, the resolution of that scene and just the way that Christoph Waltz delivers the, uh, he like sums up everything at the very end. And he's just like, uh, in other words, what I'm trying to say to you is that you owe me $200, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's just such a funny moment. And then it immediately goes to the riding through the field. And like that King Schultz has his own song for this movie too, you know? Um, 
I love how after every bounty, it's like he kills first, explains after, and he's like, I, you know, they have a bounty, dead or alive, and it's like he just chooses death. It doesn't seem like the alive thing is ever an option to him. And he's yeah. like, dead or alive, so what I did here is completely illegal. And if yeah. you kill me, you'll get hung up until, what does he say, like the last win, like, I don't know. Yeah. Really like that. Yeah. Like, he his whole thing like to me like one of the things that's interesting about schultz is that he's like a man of honor but he also has to operate in a space of sneakiness you know and um almost like conniving because i don't think like king schultz is i don't think he's a he's not a particularly powerful person um and b he doesn't have a stomach for violence. Um, so in that sense, he'd rather just kill somebody, have their body there to bring somewhere, uh, but not run the risk of like some further confrontation. He's like, he will sneak up on his victim, you know, and he will take them. It's not like a declaration, like a bounty hunter showing up and being like, I'm here for you, wild Bill. You know, like he's yeah. not that guy. He just, he's like, oh, you're Wild Bill. And the guy's like, yeah, what of it? And he's like, nothing. I was just wondering if that was your name. Bang. You know, and that's how he operates. Yeah. Like that's his, that's his entire life. I thought that that was, um, right. I like that kind of, because I think that sneakiness could feel, um, it could feel almost dishonorable. But I think the fact that he, conducts his business in such a such a confident and moral way uh kind of makes up for all of that you know exactly i mean someone in that line of work it's you know me personally murder is like probably never an option you know i don't know if i could ever do that to each his own. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the guy does what he does, and he does it well. Mm -hmm. You know, he makes his living the way he's gotta. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's bad people. So I guess, like, if you're coming at bad people and murdering them and getting money for it, you know, at least he's not... <laughs> At least he's not a slave owner. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's funny, like, I was just going to bring that up, but, like, he kind of is in the sense that, like, he bought Django. And, like, one of the things that's interesting during their initial conversation in the bar is, like, I want you to help me find the Brittle Brothers, who Django knows from a previous plantation. They're, like, these nasty, um, kind of, like, enforcer-type like farmhand type i don't know like what exactly you would call them but they're they're you know they're bad guys um and i like that <clears throat> the way that schultz frames it he frames it very much like you know you are you know you are now my property um and i need you to help me do this thing um, and when we are done doing this thing, I'm going to give you some of the money from it, um, 
I think it was $25 per Brittle Brother head, which equals out to $75 he's going to give Django. And also, he will be a free man, and he can go about his life, uh, and, and that will be fine, you know? And um, But I, I like the fact that he thinks he's going to have to coerce Django, but he finds that Django is actually like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. Like, you know, like I, it doesn't matter if you're dangling freedom over my head. I would do this if I was free right now. I would help you do this, you know, because Django is somebody that he's seen a lot of bad things and he is, you know, he is ready to kind of seek vengeance. And he also has something else that he's hoping to eventually find. And he kind of, he kind of recruits King Schultz in that mission. Um, which is, I guess I'll talk about it, but uh, he, Django was a married man and he was separated from his wife by slavery. Um, and his wife is Broomhilda, which is already, like, you can see, like, that just coincidental thing, like, King Schultz might be more invested in it because it's like she has a German name. I know that's, like, a small thing, but it's like, oh, wow, weird. Um, and Django kind of kind of devotes himself to King Schultz in, in a big way uh, in the hopes that he can kind of recruit Schultz for that cause for eventually trying to rescue her and free her as well. Um, I think that the plot of the story in this one is very... <sighs> there's something... It, it's dark because of the subject matter, but I also think that there's, like, such a heavy light involved in terms of, like, it's a love story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a love story with a lot of gore. Like, a lot of gore. <laughs> a lot of, like, tough scenes to watch. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, like, I think seeing those things and having them make you feel as bad as they do, I think the watching the retribution was that much sweeter. Yeah. I think, I think that you're right. Like I, I tend to be a, when I, when I'm looking at story and when I'm looking at what I want to see, give me power. Like I want power and it doesn't matter in what direction that power is. If, if it's, how if it's a negative power if it's violence and brutality and all that shit and or if it's positive power and it's love and loyalty and friendship i think that i don't like stories that like imagine it like a um imagine like a story like a gigantic circle right and with in that circle there are smaller circles and each of those smaller circles is I guess the big story, the big circle is like story as a concept. And then all these small circles pop up that are stories in general. But for me, my favorite stories are the ones that they're so full of everything that they almost fill up the entire mold of that they're filling. Like they almost are just what stories are. I don't know if I'm explaining this well. So like. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm, I'm, trying trying to, to I'm trying to describe this, but I can't. Um, and it's going to be even harder for people listening. So I don't. I, I'm, I apologize that I'm going down this road. But I guess what I'm saying is that <clears throat> I guess like 
stories can be full of all sorts of things the the terrible and brutal and the beautiful and uh and kind and i don't like stories that operate in only one spot of that gigantic circle so i think like you have like romantic comedies and they never are going to dip into that negative stuff you know they're never going to dip into like brutality or all that stuff because they want their audience to just stay right here and you know romantic comedy land just like if you have like a big crime thriller you're never going to probably see them do much in the realm of uh romantic comedies but i think i like stories that kind of span the entire gap like the whole fucking thing is experienced so for me what do you have in django you have you know these two men that are you know definitely friends um definitely are seeing eye to eye and are going after what is good and 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 righteous and just and then you also have these scenes of what's happening to slaves um and 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 that stuff that it's so appallingly vicious and horrible but i think that that to me it's it's closer to reality and and i think that in that way I feel like I experience more things, you know? There's more contrast. So, like, if you have those scenes of horror and brutality mixed in with scenes of friendship and love, then it makes friendship and love seem all the more beautiful by comparison, you know? Which is why movies of particular genres tend to feel flat sometimes. So I like romantic comedies are always joked about and laughed about is because I don't they don't really explore the spectrum as much so it feels like you're in a sitcom where like everything's gonna be fine nothing will change all that stuff and I like uh -huh. the fact that Django is like one of those stories where it's like it pretty much stretches its legs in all directions because it's dramatic and it's sad and it's inspiring and it's hilarious and it's you know it it, it does everything to like the 10th degree you know like it, it really is firing on all cylinders Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. You know, I never really thought of it in the sense of like, oh, well, you know, I mean, it makes sense. You know, you got certain genres that stick to the genre, and then you got movies like this that explore all of that, and they make you feel like a wide variety of emotions, and they they complement each other well. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> we were, um, Lion King was on yesterday, and like, I watched a little bit of it, and like, you obviously have that scene where Mufasa dies, and it's really sad. Mm. And then, like, the rest of the movie, for the most part, after that, is very, like, upbeat and happy, and, you know, it kind of makes you feel better, and it kind of brings you, like, from one end of the spectrum to the other, and yeah. this and that. And I, you know, never thought I'd make the connection for in any shape, way, or form from yeah. Django to Lion King, but yeah. <laughs> it's, like, the most recent thing that I, I watched that, mm. you know, kind of uh, applies, I guess. Well, that's, that's like... the first thing I came to mind. Well, that's the fascinating thing about story is there's really, there's not too many of them. It's just variations on the same kind of tried and true plots that they're like ingrained in our DNA. They're the stories that we want to know, the stories that we want to hear. The only thing that you can do as a storyteller now is push what that story could be, you know? And I think what Tarantino does in this movie is 
you know, he's telling a pretty straightforward narrative, but in filling his world with characters, both good and evil, um, and exploring extremes of human behavior, I feel like it makes for a more satisfying adventure just because it seems more holistic. It's not focusing on a small area or like just a couple of characters. It feels like you kind of get a sense of like the world of that time period, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so <clears throat> the quest to get the Brittle Brothers, um, I feel like we're kind of going in order this time, which is nice. I feel like this is a good way to do it. Yeah, this is one of his more linear movies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It doesn't do a lot of jumping around. There's like a couple flashbacks. Um, so the Brittle Brothers, um, that scene's really cool. Um, I gotta say that I love the the outfit choice that Django goes with. This like bright blue, like almost obnoxious uh outfit that he wears uh to the plantation the brittle brothers are working at um i don't know if anybody else is like all right i don't have like a lot of um i don't have much to say about don johnson but i don't know what it is i like that guy i really do um i i think part of it is because (laughs) there's like the my favorite song that came on during Grand Theft Auto V was on Los Santos Rock Radio, and it was Don Johnson's Heartbeat. Um, fucking love that song. I'm not even I'm not even fucking ashamed to say it. It's a great song. Um, but he's the uh, the head of this plantation, so it was like it was really cool seeing him. Um, also, me and you being fans of Lost, uh, of course, Mr. Tom oh. Friendly. From <laughs> yeah. uh, from Lost is one of the Brittle Brothers. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was like, oh man, I can see why Tom was another. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I thought the Bible pages that he was like stapling to his body in that scene was fucking, that was weird, man. Some weird shit. Yeah. Fucking weirdo. Yeah, he definitely seems like he might have been like a little bit gone uh, by the time we meet him. Oh, absolutely. All of them. I mean, all of them have to be hit to some degree, for sure. It's funny, like, I don't feel like we... We only really met two of them, because the other one was riding away on a horse, and uh, King Schultz kind of dealt with him uh, from a distance. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that last kill. You know, that was, like, the least climactic, but he's like, is that him? He goes, yeah. He goes, are you positive? He's like, what does positive mean? He goes, sure. He goes... I'm, I'm positive. And he shoots him. And he goes, I'm positive he's dead. It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking awesome. There's it, some great exchanges. Like, Tarantino dialogue is so fucking fun. He does such a good job. Um, yeah, that whole... The way that that entire sequence is shot is wonderful. Like, the... Uh, he's riding through the field of cotton. So it's all white. And the shot rings out. And as he like topples from the horse, you see like the blood splattering down on the on the on the uh, on the cotton there. And uh, uh-huh. it's not like some of his imagery in this movie is very effective. Um, I like that it happens like very slow, you know. 
is definitely like a a showing off kind of moment, you know, like Tarantino just taking his time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> there's some other things that happen early on in the movie, but nothing nothing too much that I want to get into. Um, so I think I'm going to jump straight ahead um, and we're going to talk about somebody that should have won an Academy Award for their performance in this movie and I still don't understand why it ha- why it didn't happen, but uh, Mr. Lee... Jonah Hill? Jonah Hill, yes. Oh. Actually, you know what? Let's take a pit stop. Let's talk about Jonah Hill. What do you think of that whole scene? <laughs> Dude, uh, uh, when you said you wanted to jump at pass it, I was like, wait, I kind of want to talk about that following scene because yeah. that was fucking hilarious. Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> I mean, that whole scene where it's like, dude, you have this, yeah, obviously a, a bunch of, like, they're not in, like, official KKK <laughs> uniform, but, like, that's what they are, and they're all, like, wearing these masks, and then it's just, like, you have this, like, really funny conversation that starts with, like, I can't see out of this fucking mask, and it's, like, some guy's <laughs> wife made the mask, and, like, you should have made your own mask, like, well, if I knew all I had to do was, you know, it's just, like, such, like, a funny little, like, <laughs> de- debate in that scene. I forget what the wife's name was, but when he's like, look, we all appreciate what Jenny did, all right? We're just saying that it's a little bit difficult to see out of these sacks. And then the guy's like, well, fuck you, I'm going home. (laughs) That whole sequence is so funny. Jonah Hill's like, I'm confused that we were in the sacks or not. (laughs) And then everyone takes them off and he's like, no, we're still wearing them. (laughs) I like the... um, Jonah Hill, like, in this movie, it's, like, funny to see him, uh, but I also, like, just, I don't know if it was any prosthetics or if he was just, like, purposely drooping one eye, but I like the characterization with, like, the one eye that, like, won't open all the way, you know? I, I thought, I thought his, uh, his look was funny, um, and then I think the culmination of that scene is fucking fantastic, like, they all converge around King Schultz's wagon, and, uh, you know, it's revealed that King Schultz and Django were, like, hiding up, you know, in the hills in, like, a tree pretty far away with that sniper rifle that he used earlier to kill the Brittle Brothers. And they've, like, packed the... I think it was the tooth, right? They filled the tooth with dynamite? Can't remember. Yes. Yeah, there's, yes, like, a, like, a, like, a, like, a hole in the tooth, like a hidden compartment that they had filled with dynamite. So as the guys, like, came around the wagon... King Schultz fired with the words Alvita Zane um, and blew that whole thing to smithereens and then you had them all running. Uh, was it was it Schultz firing or was it Django? Mm, I think that one was Schultz. It was Schultz, yeah. I think so. I think Schultz was like the sharpshooter, you know. Later on we yeah, find out but... that Django was... Like, uh, like King Schultz told Django he was going to be called the quickest gun in the South, but it was more in, like, it's like gunslinger type, like shooting from the hip, you know, not not using a rifle or not that he's a good marksman necessarily. Um, so I think King Schultz is usually called in for any long-range uh, combat. Except that one scene where uh, Django shoots that guy right in front of his son. Yeah, I think actually, that was that scene and i mean i guess it was kind of long range when um big daddy was riding off Django was he had the gun pointing at him and he's i think that was like his first introduction to like shooting a gun far away yeah 
because uh, King Charles is like, you're losing him. He's like, I got him. I got him. He's like, you're losing him. And then boom. <laughs> yeah. That was a great shot, too. That was another one of those, like, slowed down moments where you really get to appreciate, like, what you're, like, you really get to see Quentin Tarantino, like, just showing off, like, how, I, I you know, I don't think it's any secret. Quentin Tarantino is, uh, he loves violence. Like, he is fucking enamored with violence. Like, he wants blood and guts and all sorts of fucking shit flying around. Um, but he definitely understands that, like, there is uh, some type of aesthetic beauty to violence on film and he knows how to frame it in ways that are like very seductive to me so like yeah you could have shown don johnson getting shot but they don't do that they focus on his white horse and the gunshot ringing out and all of a sudden you see the white horse like turn red on its side you know and it's like that's such a great uh easy simple way to get that all across uh without being um you know without being gratuitous yeah d- definitely a, a lot of these scenes and you know one one we'll get to soon um the way it all goes down it was really fun to watch mm-hmm. it was definitely well choreographed yeah yeah they they pick- right, we'll get into that <laughs> we, we, they pick really fun like Tarantino in this movie it's funny like I don't normally think of him having restraint but I think I think there's moments here like with those framings like the brittle brother death and Don Johnson's death like that stuff the way that it's put on film it's not showing the violence directly but it's showing like things in the environment that are like stained by the violence and I kind of like those shots and feel like they're really artistic, you know, and and um, just overall beautiful compositions. Um, but then also, you know, I, I don't know that I'm thinking of what you're thinking of. I think I think I have it, but there's something that happens much later in the movie where it's like, no, it's not about framing. Like, it is about, like, watching people you know, get murdered, 100%. Um, And I like that he kind of, like, he walks that line. Like, sometimes he'll have, he'll pull back from it a little bit, and sometimes he's like, bam, it's right up in your face. Um, But he's always had interesting ways of dealing with violence. Like, I think back to the first movie that he did when Mr. Blonde is, like, slicing the ear off of the cop. And it's like, you could have stayed with that moment, but he instead, like, shifts that camera off to, like, look in the corner of the warehouse while it's happening. You know? Uh We don't actually see it happen, but we see the aftermath of it. We can hear it happening. But there's something about, like, like, the camera doesn't want to see what's going on in that scene. He has interesting ways of, like, of putting his movies together. And I'm always a fan of seeing, like, what tricks he's going to pull out and when. You know? Yeah. For sure. He's just a surprising director. He's definitely getting better as it goes. Yeah. You know, I I may not, like, have lights kill Bill all that much, but, I mean, the guy's experimenting and mm -hmm. he's fine-tuning things. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's weird. Like, he does this, and I think it's, like, it's a fantastic kind of Western movie. Um, but the follow-up is also a Western movie called The Hateful Eight, 
which is what we're going to talk about next week. But the Hateful Eight, I I don't know that I like as much. Um, I definitely don't like it as much as Django. Um, and I think I might like it a little bit less than Inglorious Bastards, but he's kind of flexing different muscles. He's, like, going back to, like, he's starting to make more complex narratives it's like a big puzzle that he's showing you like a piece of a, t- a piece at a time to make the whole movie which feels more like tarantino um uh-huh. and it definitely has like big scope there's some good comedy there's a lot of surprises in it um but this to me like stands out as being like this is tarantino like in his prime this is the best that he's gonna do um, the best that he has done. It's so magnetic. Like, the energy of this movie is so fucking um, insane, you know? Um, so, yeah. So, now that we're past the... Uh, now that we're past that, I'm like I'm surprised that I almost, like, walked right over that. I'm glad that you caught me. Um, but... <laughs> we do need to talk about somebody that needed to win an Academy Award for this movie instead of The Revenant, which he did, like, the year after, because I think that the Academy was like, oh, we fucked up. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio as Monsieur Calvin Candy. Mm-hmm. What do you think of him? Huh? What did you think of him? Dude, that guy was, he was intense. I've heard that his performance in here was really good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was another one that could, like, flip that switch between, like, kind of, like, charming and savvy to just straight, like, don't fuck with this dude. Yeah. Yeah, he's, like, full of savagery. He's, a, he's, he's Calvin Candy is definitely one of uh, Tarantino's most despicable creations, for sure. Um, yeah, this guy's a bad fucking dude. Just even the way that we're introduced to him, like, and it, we're kind of the, 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 his lawyer sort of gives us a little bit of an in already. Like, you can understand that, like, there's some, there's something about this guy that's, like, he's, he's interested in appearances, I guess, is how I would describe it. Like, when you, when they're walking up the stairs and they're saying, you know, he's saying his name, you know, you will address him as Monsieur Candy. And I think uh, Schultz is like, oh, he's French. And he's like, yeah. And I think, um, I think Schultz says something in French and then the lawyer corrects him. Like, do not, do not speak in French to him. He is, he cannot speak French and he will think that you're mocking him or something. Um, that, that sequence, you're already like, feeling like, all right, so this guy, he's, like, wannabe uh, demure, you know, like, wannabe fancy. Um, And then the way that we're introduced to Calvin is he's, like, literally watching as they're having uh, two black men fight to the death in front of him. Um, Dude, that fucking scene was tough. (laughs) Yeah, that was a nightmare scene for sure. Um, and I think, 
it's a good illustration of his complete detachment from it's like he he really doesn't see them as people you know exactly he doesn't feel that at all um and i think that his demeanor during that fight um and his calmness at the resolution of it um he basically like once one of them is down he like tosses a hammer to the other and is like go on like finish him off you know and he you know the other guy the the winner for lack of a better word um is forced to like club the man's head in with the hammer uh-huh. it's just a very sickening violent scene also you know that it's being done like they're like they're betting on who's going to win you know so there's like a like a financial compensation based on the fact that his fighter won and stuff it's just it's very gross the whole thing yeah very disturbing um but i i you know and i think like what's cool about what i like is that as the experience that you're watching it seems like Django and Schultz have different reactions to it. Like Schultz seems a lot more disgusted by what he's seeing than Django. And I think that it's sort of like a little bit of like a character thing just because Django has kind of seen, you know, you get the sense that this is not that unusual for Django. Yeah. I mean, he's, experience things very similar mm. and um yeah i mean there's that scene where he's you know um king charles is clearly disgusted and then there's that other scene when they're traveling and um they sick the dogs on one of the guys and you see leonardo DiCaprio's character saying hey your uh your boss it looks a little green huh mm. you know um and Django, just see, he keeps composed the entire time, you know. This guy's like, he's like more badass than the dude whose job is to murder people for a living. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, he seems to have more of a tolerance, you know, because he's been on the other side of these these types of, uh, you know, inter- interactions and shit. Yeah. I think like Django, it's like a, it's, it's it's doubly important for him too. Like he has a higher motivation to keep himself collected because he knows that basically the whole reason that they're interacting with, uh, DiCaprio is that he is the man that now owns Broomhilda. Um, so Uh it's like a combo thing where it's like both, there's so much wrapped up in how calmly he reacts to those sequences. It's like, I've seen it all before, I'm not surprised by it, and I have to save my wife, you know? Um, And I think that makes, like, his motivations are very clear, and it really does, like, like Tarantino, I think one of the reasons that Inglorious Bastards doesn't stand out as much to me is that the nobody in that movie except um, uh, Melanie Laurent um, has a personal uh, 
a personal grievance in terms of that script. Like, she's the only one. Her family was shot and killed by, like, on the command of uh, Hans Lander. So, this movie, I think it immediately, like, gets way... It, it, it doesn't allow you to look at it abstractly. Like, a war movie lets you look at war as a concept and the people that are within war as a concept. This movie doesn't let you really look at slavery as a concept. It it's there but the deeper connection that you have is that Django has to save his wife you know and because of that I feel like it gets way deeper in you than Inglorious Bastards does I don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah I can see that I just feel like I'm I'm way more invested in seeing what's going to happen with Django and Broomhilda than I was in seeing whether or not the the bastards are able to execute Hitler, you know, like it's too big, it's too grand. Um, yeah, this is on much on a much smaller scale. So yeah. that that personal that personal connection is what, like, like you can show me a thousand war movies, right, where it's like the Allied powers are going to beat the Axis powers. Like, come on, we got to do this. Or you can show me a movie where like. Hitler, like, I don't know what he did. Hitler, maybe he he stole some guy's money. And World War II is happening. But this doesn't have anything to do with World War II. This has to do with the fact that, like, this guy's life has been left in shambles because somebody came in and took all of his money and he can't feed his family anymore. And he's like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going after Hitler. And the whole emph- the whole reason that he's doing it is because Hitler wronged him in a very personal way, and that's what's driving him forward in this conflict. Like, show me that, and I bet that I'd be a thousand times more interested in it than the actual, like, war movie thing, where, like, Hitler's just kind of a figurehead, you know? It, 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 I, I like personal stakes. I like personal movies. Um, and this definitely, like, it fits that description really well. Yeah. Well, you get to like, you get to, to know more of the character who's, who's on this like revenge path, you know, mm-hmm. and you see the way that they've personally been wrong. I think it's easier to step into the shoes of one person and, and it feels more personal. So, you know, that happening, it's like, you kind of rooting for that one person more. you like, you know, you know, you got to get to experience more of that person's, you know, what they're going through once they, once they get what they're looking for, you know, mm-hmm. you see it on a smaller scale. Yeah. Um, you know, has like a larger impact. For sure. Um, <clears throat> this is on the ride into Candyland, which is the name of Calvin Candy's plantation. Um, which again is like a, it's it's a great you know it's a great indicator of exactly the type of monster that Calvin Candy is like the name I don't think Candy I didn't look this up but I, I I'm gonna wager a pretty strong guess that Candyland was definitely not a concept it's not a game at the time that this all took place but I think for us as audience members it like kind of feels like a it's a cue in to the idea that like this 
maybe it does seem like a game to Calvin. Maybe it seems like whenever I hear Candyland, I think of like Fantasyland. You know, like it's it's like this this place that for him it just is home. You know, and it's perfect and it's what he wants. You know, and and it's something that he really values. Um, and then you understand to like the horrors of what Candyland represents and stuff and you understand how you know this guy is so separate from he's so detached from all of it you know um so detached from the violence and the cruelty you know Mm -hmm. yeah it almost makes it seem like it's just like yeah it kind of it, it kind of furthers that idea that this is all you know this is all just normal to him that going back to that brutal fight earlier it's like they're not people to him you know it's just like another a way to entertain himself yeah for sure um and that's scary <laughs> that people do feel that way that someone could be so like just des- des- desensitized to that type of brutality that it's just like a normal everyday life something as simple as playing a game of candy land the pastime. yeah yeah i mean again i i have no idea like I, i'm i'm pretty sure the Candyland wasn't a thing when the movie takes place, but it definitely feels like it's a purposeful thing that Tarantino's doing for modern audiences to let you know that, like, you know, this doesn't... That nothing about this... He doesn't have any... any qualms about what's going on. You know, it doesn't bother him at all. Um, and I think that that is... Um, you know, it just, it, it speaks to that disgusting thing that racism is kind of based on, that it's like, some people are, <clears throat> some people are not people, like, <laughs> some people don't matter, and it's, it's very, um, it's very gross. <clears throat> yeah, man, um, did you hear... About that scene where Leonardo, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he smashes his hand down onto the glass. Yes. So let's jump ahead a little bit. Um, we're, we're introduced to Samuel Jackson when they arrive at Candy's uh, plantation house. Samuel Jackson is um, kind of like a... He is a slave, but he also feels like he's kind of like a, like a caretaker to Calvin Candy in a way. Like, like an uncle or something. Um, and they definitely have, like, an interaction between them that, like, yes, Samuel Jackson is a slave, but he also is a slave that seems to have accepted the system um, and has used his acceptance as a way to, like, gain status because he doesn't cause any problems and ultimately he's trying to help Calvin. And he's the guy that clues Calvin into the whole thing that, um, that, uh, Schultz and Django are only pretending to be there to buy a fighter from, uh, from Calvin. Uh, but they're actually there. They're only pretending to do that. Uh, they're actually there to rescue Broomhilda and that Broomhilda and Django have some type of, um, some type of relationship outside of, uh, you know, outside of their 
what they say. You know, it's a hidden relationship. Um, and it's after Samuel L. Jackson advises Leonardo DiCaprio about this that DiCaprio has his scene, um, which starts with a pretty lengthy monologue um, about racist pseudoscience um, and ends with... Uh, well, I, so once everything is made very clear that he, you know, things have turned sinister, that's when he throws everything off the table and he asks them to bring Broomhilda out and Broomhilda is sat down in the chair. Um, but before that, like when he throws everything down off the table and he smashes his hand off the table, something happens. It's a very unexpected thing. Um, but Leonardo DiCaprio slammed his hand down on one of the pieces of crystal that was on the table and uh, spliced his hand wide open. Like gushed open. <laughs> that wasn't part of the plan at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, I was wondering if you had heard that or not. Yeah, you know, I heard it a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, way, way, way before this. So that was, I was looking for that scene to happen, and I was paying attention to his hand, and his hand was covered in blood. Yeah. Covered. And the dude, he didn't miss a fucking beat. No. Not I mean, he held it together. I mean, if anything, I, you know, if you're able to just keep going under those circumstances, it, 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 it adds to, like, the the raw emotion of that character because mm-hmm. obviously you're under extreme distress mm-hmm. so he was able to channel that into his character and just come off even more fucking crazy <laughs> yeah i even like like there's a moment where you're watching him and he like yeah he knows that he hurt himself and he like turns his hand over and he's kind of looking at it and then he like picks a piece of glass out and like you know, flicks it off onto the table. It's like just those little details and that like raw authenticity and the fact that nobody else in the cast was like, oh no! Like they all just were like, okay, like he's doing his thing. We're going to stick with it. We're going to try to do this. Um, you know, it, it is like, the, it's a piece of like movie magic, you know? He required stitches for that too. That wasn't a small um- thing. Yeah, like on set, they yeah. they stitched that up. Yeah, I didn't I didn't pay attention to his hand. I mean, he jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, he doesn't really make it too far afterwards, but you know, I didn't see I didn't see if there was any uh, maintenance to the cut afterwards they, in any of the scenes following. They just had it bandaged up, and it made me wonder if they had to reshoot or if they were shooting relatively in order so that the last scenes with Calvin Candy were the last scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio because uh-huh. he is bandaged during those scenes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always had wondered, I had to do a little bit of digging, but I had always wondered that like Broomhilda gets brought out, she's placed in the chair and as DiCaprio's talking, there's a point where he turns around and he grabs her by the face with, like, his hand all bloodied. And he, like, uh-huh. wipes it over her face. And I always wondered, like... Because I know Tarantino, I guess he doesn't like to do more than three takes. Like, if we, if we can't get 
we got to get it in three. If we don't get it in three, then we're going to have a shitty scene. Um, but I always wondered about that moment and whether or not that was still his actual bloody hand. Um, I guess it wasn't. But Kerry Washington does a fucking fantastic job of making it seem as though it is because she looked absolutely fucking horrified when it happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I was wondering the same thing. Because he was like, when he was holding it down too, he had his bloody hand all over the back of her head. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that poor girl. <laughs> yeah. I, I wondered. I had no idea if he had actually done that. But I know that actors are kind of like, sometimes they push boundaries, so it wouldn't have necessarily surprised me if he had. Uh, it does kind of comfort me a little bit to know that he didn't do that to her, though. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Just because it That's wasn't good to hear, because I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also like, too, like, you can't really see the other actors because the camera's behind them watching DiCaprio talk. But I like, if you watch... There's a couple of shots where, like, Samuel L. Jackson kind of looks from Leo to his hand over and over, like, is there something wrong? Like, what's going on? Why is your hand bloody? Like, he... <laughs> it's like this honest concern between two performers that I thought was kind of fun. And it works well with the characters, too. You know, like, I'm sure that, uh, what was his name? Steven? I'm sure that... Uh, which one? The, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character? Was he Steven? Dude, I'm so bad with names. I'm so sorry. I should like <laughs> whenever a new character gets introduced in a movie, I should just say his name or his or her name like a hundred times in my head. Let so me look it up remember. real quick because I I, I think it was, but I, I it would have worked for him too in terms of um like he cares about Calvin, so he would be concerned about that whole um the whole bloody hand situation um. Let me just find out real quick. Yep, Steven. Um, but yeah, I thought that that was like a really fun... It's fun understanding that like that is 100% true. It is happening and the people in the room are reacting to Leonardo DiCaprio's performance like in a very genuine way. Um, uh -huh. I, it was fun even like hearing about Jamie Foxx saying that like, his experience of it, realizing that he was cut, that he was bleeding all over the place, and being like, is anybody else seeing this? Like, in his head, he's, like, looking around at other people in the room, like, is anybody gonna say anything? Is he gonna say anything? Like, what the fuck is going on, you know? The fact that no one did is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, that was a long monologue that he was in the middle of delivering when it happened. Uh -huh. And uh, just a huge credit to everybody involved for keeping it together because it's, it's you know that's what's that's what's that's the reason that Django like holds such a high honor in my head is there's for me there's two of my favorite scenes is the sequence in the beginning with um, King Schultz uh, the you owe me two hundred dollars scene and then this one there's just it's so tense and um, you know. The dread is so real, and DiCaprio is so deliciously unhinged, and, you know, I think I think part of the reason it plays so well is you care so much for those people, you know? They, they matter to you. Um, we're gonna... Alright. Um, so yeah, beyond that scene... 
Uh, they make their agreements that they're going to pay $12,000 under duress for the safe return of Broomhilda. Um, everything goes off relatively without a hitch until uh, Monsieur Candy insists that King Schultz shakes his hand. Um, now, I'm going to say something right now. And never really occurred to me until I was watching it um, for this episode. But I felt like I was disappointed in King Schultz in that scene. For not just shaking his hand and moving along? Because I think I understand not wanting to shake his hand. But also that... I, okay, so I understand not wanting to shake his hand, but I feel like you know that Broomhilda and Django are not in a particularly safe state right now. So uh-huh. you doing this um, puts them back in danger that you just helped them escape from. So why why do it? Like maybe if you think Calvin Candy should be dead, spoiler alert, he shoots him. Um, but, like, maybe if you think that Calvin Candy should be dead, like, you just add that to the list of things to do at a later date, and instead, he does it right then and there, and I kinda... I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that action. Yeah, it didn't make too much sense to me either why he would just do that, and the fact that he did it, and then he kinda just stood there and just waited for the... The repercussions you know like when he turns around and he gets the gun pointed at him and he's like oh couldn't resist it's like it's almost like he knew the second he did that that he was going to be killed yeah and just didn't care well at that point they had taken all their guns from them except for that hidden derringer like he goes to shake candy's hand and the derringer it's on like a sliding bit like you've seen in a bunch of westerns but it pops out from uh from his sleeve and he shoots Calvin, like, pretty much through the heart. Um, but it definitely, like, it, it just, to me, I would have just been like, we should go back and do that later. Um, but, I, I don't know, it's tough. Like, I understand, Schultz has always been a man of principle. So uh-huh. I kind of understand that he would... He would stick to his guns, so to speak, in that moment. But I just, I, I, I do it. It bothers me. Like I hate seeing King Schultz die, and I hate that it kind of puts them back in jeopardy because I feel like he would have held it together um, long enough for them to be truly safe. You know. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, but if he didn't do that, we wouldn't have that crazy scene that followed afterwards. <laughs> yes. So Django manages to get the gun out of um, out of the holster of like one of the enforcer types, um, and then a gunfight like you ain't never seen no gunfight before ensues dude the way he does the effects with people getting shot is just like it's 
it's over the top, but it's not so over the top where it's, you know, like, I, like an eye roll to watch. It's yeah. over the top, like, you know, like at a very acceptable level, yeah. like an entertaining level. Yeah. Yeah. The, the blood effects in this movie are like some of my favorite blood effects from any movie ever. They're so fucking crazy. Like there are full, like it looks like somebody threw like a gallon of paint out of somebody. Like just bam. And there's just this fucking cascade of red. And it's like, like you said, it's over the top, but it's so fucking satisfying. And I feel like it's far enough into the movie that it's like when, um, like there's a famous thing with Steven Spielberg about the ending of Jaws. He's talking with Peter Benchley, and I guess in the original Jaws, the the shark is connected to those uh, buoys, connected to the barrels that are filled with water, and eventually, like it 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 basically drowns because it can't move through the water fast enough, and that's how the shark dies in the book Jaws. And Steven Spielberg was like, "We can't fucking do that in a movie." And Peter Benchley Wait, was what the shark the. Sh- shark drowns yeah so like if it's not moving fast enough through the water it's not getting air so it's like drowning it's yeah yeah like it's that's what it that's how it would be defined oh okay so basically in the book they were like we have a cool interesting fact about sharks that not a lot of people know we're just gonna put it in there because that's really cool yes exactly (laughs) I, I didn't know. I you know. I think now that you said, I think I heard something like that. That if, if they stop moving for like a long period of time or whatever, like something bad happens. But yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. That that could happen. But yeah, that seems kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, they have like a quick moment in the movie where Quint's like revealing his plan, and he makes mention of like we're gonna bring him further into shore and we're gonna drown him. Um, which is like wow, that's fucking crazy. But the Steven Spielberg was right. He was like, we got to do something different. And he wanted to have like a more satisfying, like, all right, go home ending, you know, like every, the show's over. Um, and he was talking to Peter Benchley and he was like, here's what I'm thinking. We take the scuba tank, we have Brody shoot it and the shark's going to fucking explode. And Peter Benchley was like, that would never happen. Like, that's not what happens when you shoot a scuba tank. And he was like, listen, they've been with me for two hours watching this fucking movie. Whatever I put on the screen is what's going to happen. Like, they're not going to care. They're they're already invested. So, like, in that way, Tarantino, we've already, like, we're connected to his characters. We're, like, fully invested in the movie. We want to see how it ends. So, like, all of a sudden he pulls out this gunfight sequence that is just fucking bananas. And there is so much blood splattering everybody, everybody, everywhere. But I think that because you just, because you've been on that journey for so long, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel over the top in a way that's offensive. You know, like you are still fully invested in seeing what happens with Django. So it doesn't hit you the same way that it could have, you know? Um like, you, you brought up Kill Bill, and I feel like Kill Bill has, like, this, like, showering blood thing going on throughout that movie, but it it happens, like, almost too early. It happens before you're, before you care enough about the characters to stick with it and, and, and to take it seriously, 
I feel like in Django, like I have no qualms about it. I, I take it 100% seriously and I'm like, yes, that's exactly what somebody getting shot would look like, you know, <laughs> even though I know that there's no way that that is true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. I was like, damn, dude, these fucking pistols are packing power. Yeah. I the, the, like, it, there's something like crazy beautiful about it though, too. Like, again, his aesthetic um the aesthetic choices that he makes regarding violence are like stunning you know and they they really and there's such a mix of things going on in that scene you're like you get hyped up as the music starts swelling and you're like excited and you're worried about what's going to happen with Django but also there's like these comedic bits like the fucking lawyer uh He's the first guy, but then there's another guy, too, that it's like they just keep getting pegged over and over. Just bam, bam, bam. Just keep getting shot one after another. And it's like that, like hearing them like, oh, God, oh, God. And like every time gunfire erupts, at least one bullet is like passing right through them, you know. Um, But it's like it's like it's so over the top and like grotesque that it's funny. I don't know. He's like. Tarantino's great at finding, like, humor in the little things, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but yeah, did you, so that was definitely a sequence that you were into? Yes, yeah. I had that, that, when I was talking earlier about my overall thoughts on the movie and about it being fun, this was the scene that came to mind. Because, I mean, it's just so satisfying because, like, all those guys fucking deserve it. Yeah. And to watch him coming from where he came from just just getting his revenge on people who may not have like directly affected him but just knowing what they do mm-hmm. and him having that opportunity to do it for himself but everybody else who's been affected by these people it's just it was fun it was a fun scene to watch it is beautiful um <laughs> it leads into kind of like the final sort of act if you could call it that of the movie um Django isn't successful in the shootout he winds up being recaptured um Walton Goggins we've already seen him earlier um when they were riding into Candylands and he seemed to have um he had his eyes like set on Django from you know from the beginning Actually, I meant to talk about this, but the the scene when they're going into Candyland and uh, Django walks over to the guy that was, like, mouthing off to him, and he, like, grabbed his horse and just threw him and the horse on the ground was fucking crazy. Yeah. I've never seen anything like that before, but I guess you can actually train horses to just fall over on command, and that's kind of what they did with that. But it looked so authentic on screen. It looks so brutal. <laughs> But um, uh-huh. but yeah, that that sequence with Walton Goggins, the dread is so real. He's such a um, Walton Goggins is such a crazy bastard, you know. And uh, he plays this this part again, like another. I don't know if he he seems like elevated, like he's like security or something. Like he's the type of guy that you would send out if any of the slaves tried to escape, you know. Um, that sequence and then it leads into he gets interrupted by Samuel L. Jackson who tells uh, 
Django what they're going to do to him, which is basically they're going to sell him to something called the LaQuint Dickey Mining Company, um, where they're basically going to just have him take a sledgehammer and make big rocks little rocks until the day he can't do it anymore, and then they're going to bash his brains in with said hammer and throw him into some hole, and that's going to be it for him, for Django, you know? Um, but, you know, this has to have a satisfying ending, and that wouldn't be satisfying at all. So, what do we do? We have Django being led through the countryside by Quentin Tarantino. I don't know if you noticed him. Yes, I did. <laughs> I look for him now. Um, so yeah, Tarantino has Django uh, tied with rope, and there are slaves from Candyland in the caged wagon that the other two men are driving. And Django uh, tells them basically what had happened was they were there to capture the... Um, they were there to capture Smitty Bacall and the Smitty Bacall gang. He tells them that they're there. Smitty Bacall was the guy that... Um, well, Smitty, I can't remember if it was Smitty or if it was one of the members of the gang, but that was the guy that Django had shot earlier in the movie um, that was with his son. Um, but he plays it up like they were hiding out at Candyland and that that's why they had gone in. Um, and he basically makes a deal with them that they can have most of the bounty money um, if they free him and they head back like right now, they can, they can still get them. Um and they go for it. And the reason they go for it is some of the slaves in the cage actually like kind of stick up for Django and, and tell the truth that Django did ride into Candyland as a free man, that he's not a slave, and all of that stuff. <clears throat> that scene, um, I like that scene a lot too, just the build-up to it, and um, uh-huh. the way that like Tarantino at first has like no interest in anything that Django's saying. Um, but then slowly it's like, Django gets his, like, hooks in him, and Quentin Tarantino's like, wait, how much did you say, you know? <laughs> he gets more and more interested. Um, I love the resolution to that scene, too, is, like, I don't know, this movie's good at, like, building up the legend of Django. Like, building up, like, him as this, like, awesome gunslinger. Um, one of the guys, like, passing like, takes off his gun belt and goes to hand it to Django while Quentin Tarantino is removing dynamite from one of the horses. And as soon as he gets it, like, the guy's passing it to him, and he's like, you be careful with that, don't drop it. I just had the sights fixed. And Django's just like, good to know. And just bam, bam, shoots the two guys that are right with him, turns around, shoots the dynamite that Tarantino's holding, and bam, Tarantino disappears. Um, And then just the shots of him, like, going back, he, like, Leave, he gets, like, water, douses himself with it. Um, he takes one of the horses, um, and he leaves the, the wagon open so that the slaves that were in there can escape. Um, just that whole sequence is just very, very cool. Agreed. That was fun. Yeah. Another fun scene. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so satisfying. This entire movie all the way through, like, they... It's a roller coaster where you're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. But, like, it's always satisfying. Um, Django, from that scene, he takes Dynamite back to Candyland and he rigs the whole house to uh, eventually blow up. 
but not before he gets like a couple more great gunshots in <laughs> some of them being like ridiculous but i love them so much the shot of him shooting oh we didn't talk about calvin candy and his like weird relationship with his sister slash wife or whatever the fuck's going on there that's gross but he uh the way he like he's talking to one of the slaves and he's like he says to her like say goodbye to miss laura and she's like what and he's like, say goodbye to Miss Laura. And she's like, goodbye, Miss Laura. And then all of a sudden he just goes bang and he shoots her. And the angle's completely wrong. Like, <laughs> he shoots her and she flies back in a different direction than he shot her from. And I fucking love uh-huh. it. It's just so weird. And it's like one of the, it's just fun. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Walton Goggins gets shot in the balls, which is just beautiful because he was fixing on gelding Django in that earlier scene that I was talking about. So that was exciting and then of course samuel L. jackson gets what's coming to him too for being a part of the system right um i love that scene of him uh shooting samuel L. jackson yeah and like lighting the fuse and samuel L. jackson saying like oh they're gonna get you they're the guy they're gonna be hunting you now like you're gonna be on the bounty posters now and all that shit but i just love that it's like it's like, nah, it's over. Like, I won. You know? Like, I won 100%. Can't take that away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, the satisfying image of, like, Django having the lit cigar with the sunglasses, watching the Candyland plantation house completely blow up. It's movie magic. 100%. Yeah, it was a good ending. Happy ending. Yeah. After all that, a brutal yeah. ending, but happy. Yeah, I like too the you know there's the shot of Django putting on his sunglasses, getting ready, and like his hands on his hips, like superhero style. And then there's that shot of Kerry Washington like bringing her fingertips up and plugging her ears. There's something like very cute about that moment that she's having. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I I love that they get to ride off into the sunset together. Um, it is a perfect ending. And actually, so the horse that Jamie Foxx is riding throughout the movie is called Cheetah. And it's his actual horse. Jamie Foxx actually has a horse. And, um, yeah, so like the little tricks that it was doing at the end of the movie, um, showing off to Broomhilda, it's actually like something that Jamie Foxx had already taught that horse. Like him and him and the horse, like know how to work together already. So they got some of that on film, which is really cool. Um, And I'm trying to think of... Oh, um... Yeah, so so I thought that that was like a neat thing, that they had the horse there. Um, I thought I had it, but I don't... There's something else here. Talk for a minute. Let me me figure this out. Oh geez, okay. I'll I'll just I'll just bullshit for a while. I don't really have too too much more to add, but I will fill the space while you think and mm-hmm. try and figure out what you were gonna say. Because <laughs> like you pretty much covered the uh, like the last last parts of this movie here and all the cool scenes and the satisfying ending we get to an otherwise brutal movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, happy ending for these characters. Um, not to take you off track, but was 
not nothing that I've seen that I could have put together connects to the, the Tarantino universe. Thank you. <laughs> That's what it was. Um, oh, okay. So here we go. Uh, these are these are several. There's only one big connection. Um, so actually, there's two that I can think of off the top of my head. There might be more. But one of the people in the Smitty Bacall gang was named Crazy Craig Coons. Um, the Coons name uh, is repeated in Pulp Fiction in regards to, I think, I think somebody from Butch's dad's history. Like during the Christopher Walken scene. Uh-huh. Could have been Christopher Walken was Coons. Let me let me double check this real quick because I'm I'm pretty sure, but I'm not positive. Um Which that's kind of a cool um a cool connection. So it would mean that Yeah. So So Christopher Walken is Captain Coons in Pulp Fiction. But I think that I think it's spelled different than the one that was in Django. Hang on. Is it? I think, but I don't feel like... uh, I don't feel like... That... Oh my god. What the fuck. I don't feel like... Quentin Tarantino would make that mistake. Let me do a little bit of research here. Uh, so, Quentin Tarantino's works. My Mr. Blonde, Vincent Vega, Vic Vega. Yeah. Um, however, he couldn't recall the time with unfortunately, Captain Coons. Nope, it is spelled the same. So, Captain Coons, um, from Pulp Fiction, apparently, um, Somebody down his ancestry was called Crazy Craig Coons, and he was part of the Smitty Bacall gang. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. It's weird. It's very minor. Um, extremely minor. Um, uh-huh. There's only two other ones that I can think of, and they are that... And this might not make sense, because if you're going in the movie-in-movie movie universe thing... Kill Bill isn't actually part of the real world, so this might not hold up, but King Schultz, uh, the grave that um, Uma Thurman's buried in, uh, is the grave of Paula Schultz. So some people have speculated that there might be some type of relation between uh, the aforementioned Paula Schultz, Schultz and, uh, and King Schultz. I don't know if I totally believe. Um, the last one is not really part of Tarantino's universe, but we know that Broomhilda was raised by Germans, um, or at least owned by Germans for a pretty long period of time. And during that time, she learned German and all that stuff. But they were the Von Shafts, right? Now, throughout... throughout Django, they're kind of referring to Django as Django Freeman. Um, 
But it's not like a real last name that's on any official documents, unlike Broomhilda, who actually is Broomhilda Von Shaft. So, more than likely, Django's going to wind up taking her name, right? Their child will be a Von Shaft, right? Uh-huh. There's speculation that Django is like the great, great, great grandfather of uh, Detective John Shaft, the uh, the seventies like black exploitation, you know, police officer character. Huh. You know him. That's interesting. You know Shaft. Yeah. Who's the man with all the something? <laughs> I don't remember the words to this song. Shaft. Yeah. yeah. Right. So basically, Shaft would be like his great great grandson. Well, that's a pretty interesting theory there. They're both badasses. So yeah, I've never seen Shaft, but I know I know of it. Well, you you know that he's the man with all the something or others. Oh, I Shaft. Do. So <laughs> automatically, you know he's badass. Um, so yeah, I mean that's pretty much it for Django Unchained. It is definitely my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I had more fun watching this one than I had with any of the other movies that we've watched in his filmography. So definitely feel like this one has risen up uh, and is on like another tier compared to everything else. I agree. This one's definitely up there so far with all the ones that we've watched out of the seven. I mean, six, technically seven, just because we... Mm -hmm. But Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 is one movie, which it feels kind of like one movie anyway, so. Yeah, it's just one big script that got cut up <laughs> a lot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I, I think I'm ready to wrap it up. Yeah, man, I'm good. All right, so uh, we'll just say thank you for listening. If you're still here with us, we really appreciate it. Um Use the hashtag WTFADA giveaway one. Get yourself a $25 Amazon gift card and a pack of motherfucking stickers. Um, WTFADA stickers to be ex- exact. You can check them out at ron-iii.redbubble.com. You kind of get a look at all of the um, all of the stickers that you will be receiving uh, if you win, which it'll be really easy to win. Just use that hashtag. Nobody else is listening. You Literally the it. first one. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, be safe. Be kind. And masturbate joyously. Yes. Especially the last one. <laughs> Alright. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>